Hello, Ernest. Hello, Ernest. Oh, made it. It's been a crazy day. Having a little data science hackathon at Project Work. And uh, my first real experiment trying to do something not with all these things. So it's been a bit of an adventure. Mm -hmm. and hopefully, I'll have something that will be uh, at least mildly interesting. It was only a great learning experience, even if no one else is impressed. Yeah. So, how are you doing? I'm all right. I'm all right. Thanks for asking. Good. So, first, uh, you you got to eavesdrop a bit on my other uh, podcast media series. Uh, the Great Reset on Tuesday. Did you have any particular thoughts or reactions from that? Mm. Uh, let me see. Yeah. Make some notes. Uh, well, it was um, interesting um, listening to how uh, people who are deeply religious want to mm-hmm. uh, address um, this problem of social networking and, and group and and you know having small groups and having those small groups adhere to a common set of uh, what it is uh, values in this case the value mm-hmm. was you know God and Jesus mm-hmm. but uh, um, yeah I heard uh, uh, views that. Uh, uh, there was one person who was a leader of a small group, but uh, he didn't. Uh, it was a small group that he got tired of it because mm-hmm. was it that he was doing too much work or? Um, well, I think he was, uh, he was actually leading it, uh, but the context, Stephen, who's on my other podcast, he was part of a men's group, which uh, at the beginning he had a lot of high hopes for how it would work. But uh, he realized it was not actually going in the direction that he really felt he needed to actually grow. It was becoming something other than that. And he had many attempts where he had tried it and failed. I think this is actually really interesting because a case study, because we talked about uh, the hard part of of bootstrapping any sort of system. Um, And, you know, the first stage is coming up with a pitch where say, hey, I'm I'm building a group that will do this. Will you join me? And it's hard enough to get people to even show up for that, right? Uh, but the second thing is, once they show up, how do you actually keep them engaged in the group? And this is a hard problem uh, for a variety of reasons, right? There's a certain amount of cultural capital that you can sometimes draw upon, like, hey, I know what this thing is, or I'm part of this larger community that is endorsing this, like most small group Bible study type things are sponsored by a church. And so people who are part of that church say, hey, this is endorsed by people I trust, therefore I will join it. And then there's some social pressure to keep doing it. Um, what was interesting about the Great Reset is that uh, it was actually started by three of us, uh, none of us whom currently attend the same church, although we were all part of the same church uh, a while back. And so uh, the three of us started, and we invited these other people, all of whom are in different places geographically, and uh, none of the rest have any common church out. So it actually is, was quite impressive to me 
that we've even been able to sustain this conversation for three seasons with people who had a sort of general shared passion, but no clear structural support. And in some ways, that's really hard to do. Uh, and uh, um, one of uh, a major problem is so you have a group, and um, like you said, that the, this individual lost uh, lost purpose. faith in the group. Lost, yeah. yeah. So that that means that the group itself lost purpose. You know, if he was the leader, and well, he was, the I other, think he was actually the leader of that group. Okay. So he was a contributor to the group. And the group, uh, I mean, the people there seemed reasonably content with, you know, the level of success that the group was having at accomplishing its purpose. And they were content, but he was not. Yes. Well, that's, yeah, well, I think that's fine. You know, if uh, you, it's fine to leave a group if you don't feel yourself connected to that group anymore. Right. I think that's very, very healthy. You know, you don't want to. Right. I mean, it can be healthy or unhealthy, depending on the context. But the point is, is that if you're trying to build these pro-social communities, as we've discussed before, this is a hard problem, right? Because people can either, uh, let's say, uh, drop out or drop up, right? Sometimes if you're a group that's trying to accomplish something, people say, you know, I'm not really that into it. It's too hard. I don't want to do it. And they'll drop out. And that's kind of sad, right? Uh, but the other kind is the uh, in some ways to the reasons you and I left Apple is like, well, you know, this group, I appreciate what it's doing, but uh, it's not really uh, doing what I thought it was going to do. And I'm going to try and search for something better that will help me accomplish that purpose. And from the outside, it's really hard to tell which is which, whether people are leaving because they're just lazy or they're leaving because they dream of something better. Mm-hmm. And the point is that either thing is that, you know, if you don't have a closed system where you can require everyone to participate, which I think we're trying to get away from top-down coercion, mm-hmm. it's the challenge of how do you actually sustain a group and balance the overall purpose of the group with the needs of individual members. It's a really hard problem. And one of the interesting things uh, you talked about the bootstrapping process is religion is useful in this context, very specifically in this context, because uh, especially in modern America, there's a sense where religion is this personal passion you have, not just a community identity you share. And therefore, there's, you know, both good and bad senses, a, a market for people who are looking for new religious or spiritual experiences. And so, you know, even though the Great Reset is very strange by many dimensions, it at least has that common cultural framework that I can draw upon to say, hey, be a part of the challenge we're having with forking humanity is that there is no, um, um, uh, there's no clear obvious market that we can target. Right, because the people either deny the problems exist or the people who care about the problem have already thrown their lot in with a political party or uh, a Marxist uh, discussion group or something like that. And so it's more just a side note, but it's just saying that this is hard. And 
but I think one of the points that you raised, which I thought was a good one, and actually something I want to explore further is, you know, having a core group of people with a shared, even religious passion is a great way to bootstrap something, but it's not very scalable in the sense that um, religion almost by its nature, and it even came up during the call, was that like, you know, how do we know this isn't just going to be like another rotary or just become another secular thing? And there's this tension even in my own life between my personal religious passions and how I want to see them play out and an acknowledgement that for things to scale, you can't demand uh, ideological purity. You have to say, you know, there's a certain level of minimum civility uh, that we require or encourage in the group. And expect everyone to have the same exact same beliefs or the exact same passion, or you end up excluding a whole ton of people or forcing people to be inauthentic. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And so the interesting question I wanted to focus on with you, I think I'm going to put that in the chat, is what would it look like to build a, you know, let's call it a pro-social network? Right, because the idea is that you want to have something that is a fully open platform, right? You don't want to have coercion, you don't want to have top down authority, you want to allow, in a sense, everyone to participate uh, on a more or less level playing field. At the same time, we want to say that uh, we want to reward and encourage pro social behavior, positive sum game, um, and make sure that we're not you know, creating a play field for people who want to be negative and cruel, uh, like Twitter has often become. And so that was the design challenge. It, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So the, uh, the short answer to that question, just to answer my own question, is if you want to create an open interoperable system where everyone participates, uh, uh, but you want to make sure it encourages certain behavior and discourages others, the only point you really can control are the interfaces. How an individual group interfaces with other groups, right? Because in some sense, you have to give people the autonomy to like run their own little groups however they want. But you can say, in order to participate in this larger, what's called an ecosystem of multiple communities, you have certain guardrails or metrics that are uh, validated uh, sort of by an independent authority that allows you to um, ensure some level of accountability. Does that make sense? Uh, uh, so you mentioned authority. What type of authority? Common authority? And, and independent authority, right? Because let's, let's just let's stick with the word accountability for now, right? And we talked about the fact that if you really want to encourage pro-social behavior, then you need a way for people to, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, make promises and keep them, right? You don't want to have people being able to create sock puppets and you know simulate that they have all this credibility and authority and use that to build people. That would be bad, right? Mm-hmm. And so there has to be some sort of, um, uh, for lack of a word, a scarce resource 
that people can earn for doing pro-social things, but uh, is not either easily gained or requires a massive central authority to impose discipline, right? That's the hard problem of design. Why does it have to be honest? scarce? Uh, well, because know, like... which is, if it's an infinite resource, in the sense that anyone can accumulate, sorry, let me, let's, let's say, let me, scarce is the wrong word, but the, let me put it this way. If someone shows up with no previous background and experience, and they immediately have the same level of trust and credibility as someone who has been working hard and building relationships, that feels unfair, right, on the one hand. Uh, on the other hand, it's also unfair if someone who got there first and has been very mediocre, uh, but has been around a long time, um, is awarded enormous amounts of trust, and someone who shows up and is really doing a great job and contributing to a community is said, well, is, is dismissed because they've not been around a long time. Both extremes seem unhealthy in terms of encouraging pro-social behavior. Does that make sense? Uh, why would the former, the person who's been there the longest, but hasn't done anything or, or not much, why would that person have a lot of trust if if this person well, hasn't done anything? There are some systems which are built around seniority. Right? Well, the, it's, it's, it's a good reason. I'm saying that is one way to design a system is you reward longevity. Uh, another well, we, way is you, you reward, and because, you know, I'll, I'll give you a reason for it is that the very fact that you've stuck around in the community for a long time rather than defecting or abandoning is worth something, right? It's a sign mm. where someone who's just shown up, it's entirely positive. I'm not saying it's worth everything, but it is worth something, right? Oh, so for example, but, some guys, you know, for example, a con man, they specialize mm -hmm. in showing up and having all these pro-social signals just long enough to work the con, and then they disappear, right? Mm -hmm. And right, so having, if you have a anonymity, it's hard. So a pseudonym is, has some value just for the fact that someone has invested in it for a long time. It doesn't guarantee anything, but it's a useful signal, right? This is uh, why well, high groups tend to be suspicious of strangers. And that would be too. Pay for banks that have been around for decades rather than weeks. I understand. But uh, if you see uh, just your your normal high school groups or, or any social groups, right? There's people in this group or clique, some of them, uh, and, you know, because of, like I said, uh, uh, seniority or power or whatever they have, uh, it's not that people trust them, it's that people are afraid of them or they wanna be in their good graces for whatever reason. But if the system itself, doesn't, you know, because we're talking about designing a system to fix this problem. If the system itself right. doesn't say or, or allows people to see the whole person, say, uh, okay, I uh, this person is trusted because uh, they have done many things. You know, uh, even the 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 new the newcomer can. Uh, it's not that people can trust them, but they can see that this person is accomplished. For, uh, for, uh, you know, a, sci a scientist or, or a volunteer. There's information attached to that person that says this person has done these things. 
his his um, or hers uh, uh, activities behaviors um, have uh, is trust is placed on the, the the person doing the trusting is the one who gives that person trust so the same person have has different levels of trust among the group it's not like the person is is trusted it, it, no, the person is trusted, but is trusted to different levels by each other person. So, uh, depending on uh, if the people that I trust trust this other person, then I give that person some level of trust. But it's not the same level that the other people will give that person. So, uh, the system would have to allow for each individual to hold different levels of trust. It's not that trust is is uh, shared the same way. Trust is, is has different levels depending on who's doing the trusting and and what things that person places uh you know as valuable to uh, and engender trust. You know, this this person values so I, I value knowledge and I value people who share their knowledge then they would trust a teacher more than a, more than they trust uh, you know a, a carpenter, for example. If this other person places more trust on people that work with their hands, you know, and and are creative, maybe this other person will, will trust the carpenter more than the teacher. You know, it, it would depend. So we can't. The system shouldn't just uh, have uh, okay, yeah, this person earns you know whatever currency, you know, trust or whatever by uh, equally, you know, throughout the whole group. You no, know, it, it will have to be like like let's call it distributed trust, something like that. That is not the same. It's it's not even the group that trusts this you know, the group as a as an entity uh that trusts this person. Is each individual member of the group would trust that person differently depending on what they hold uh, you know, you understand yeah, so that? Yeah, so this is the, the um, Cory Doctorow idea of this is Luffy, uh, which is sort of social capital. Uh, I sometimes use the word cred, short for either credits or uh, credibility. Um, but the idea is that you can have, uh, and that if people you dislike like someone, he calls it left-handed Luffy. Right, it's like you know, if this is someone that you know, uh, you know, say a rabid Leninist really love, uh, then that might be someone that I'm intended to dislike. So I think there's a really interesting point here, which is that uh, uh, we just call it cred for shortness, right? Cred is something that is in the eye of the beholder, mm-hmm. right? And that so the there's a sense in which cred needs to be something that is scarce in the sense that you can't just give away infinite amounts of it with no consequences, right? It has to be something that, I, that you, if you give credit to someone, it has to cost something in some sense. Um, and it, uh, that you don't, you know, like what is a recommendation? The fact that someone is willing to take the time to do this is a signal that they believe that you are actually worth it uh, in a different way than just, and, and you know, a handwritten note conveys much more emotion than an email um, because it's a sign of effort you put into it, right? So the, the, the anthropological term for this is costly signals. 
right? So mm-hmm. like, you know, it's like the Peacock's tail being the classic example. It's the same that like, I put a lot of energy into doing this and it's a hard signal to fake. And so the idea of a system of, of cred where people within their local communities have, you know, there's a, a sense in which the community as a whole has a certain cred with outsiders uh, and different outsiders may rate it differently. Um, but there's a sense in which you kind of like to have um, um, a way of tracking who has assigned cred to whom. And then you also want to be able to normalize, right? If somebody is really gullible and they just give cred to everybody, you know, they should be paying a cost for that as opposed to someone who's more selective. Uh, the reason this gets hard is that generally speaking, cred accumulates over time. And what that means is that the people who were there first have a natural advantage. What's interesting is that there's been a couple of design patterns that have been explored recently at scale for solving that problem. Like one of the problems, right, is that the first pioneer in a place, they go through you know, a lot of hardships to get somewhere, but then they can homestead and then they could get lazy or their descendants could get lazy, but they still have all that credit and resources from being first when they're not actually contributing to the society and may even be acting in antisocial ways. So the way that um, multiplayer games do this is they have seasons where there's a period of leveling up and then you gain cred and then after a period of time, everything resets and you have to kind of re-earn your cred level to see if you still got, and that way the newcomers every season have a chance. The other way to do it is the way TikTok does it, where they have um, uh, a uh, inscrutable algorithm. So rather than following people like on Twitter or YouTube, where the early uh, attendees, you know, acquire masses of te- uh, followers, and therefore they have this sort of insurmountable lead, which is very hard to dethrone. Uh, in TikTok, there is no such royalty. Uh, is that the algorithm says what's cool right now, regardless of who it's from. And if you work really hard, there's a chance you can get some level of fame, at least within your smaller circles. Um, And in theory, if you're good enough, you can break into the top 10 based on pure merit rather than on historical accomplishment. And what that says to me is that it makes sense if you're trying to design a system that is goals to maximize human flourishing, you kind of need different scales of cred, if you will. There's sort of your instantaneous cred, what are you doing right now, which is worth something. There's your historical cred, which is all you've done for your whole history, which is also worth something. And then there's what's called seasonal cred, which is what have you done recently? And the idea is that uh, the system should probably track all of those uh, separately, you know, and they feed into each other in different ways, but it's a, it's a way to sort of keep the game interesting, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, ex- yeah. So is the middle one something like ex- uh, expiring cred or? Well, there's two ways to do it. One is to have expiration where the cred's due at a certain time. The other is to actually officially have seasons like they do in multiplayer games. So, you know, four times a year or eight times a year, they reset the clock. So my son, you know, he, you know, just made it, you know, from, and the way it works there is that you start out at like bronze level 
and then you work way up to silver and gold and platinum. And so my first season, my son, you know, he started at bronze, he made his way all the way to platinum four, which is the lowest level of platinum, and then the season ended and he was stuck there. So interestingly, this season, because he was up, he made his way to platinum, he was allowed to start at silver. He hit a little bit of a head start, uh, but he didn't get to keep all of his cred, if you will. And he's halfway through the season, he's already hit platinum four. So he's got a good chance of reaching up to platinum three or platinum two. Now, in some ways, it's also harsher because in the beginning phases, you're playing not just against other novices, but against really experienced players who haven't leveled up yet. And so that makes it sort of more brutal at the beginning in some ways, although those people tend to level out quickly and then you can catch up. But it's a really, and interestingly, this actually has been tried at a political level before with the Jewish concept of Jubilee. And I don't know how well it actually worked in practice, but the theory was that, you know, you divide up all the land among all the households equally at the beginning. And over the course of the year, some people prosper, some people fall into poverty, they have to sell their land or uh, get work, work for somebody else. But every seven years, there's a minor reset. And after seven sevens of years, there's a major reset called the Jubilee. And all property reverts back to the original landowners. So the idea is you can't really make legal contracts that extend beyond that horizon. So obviously, if you buy it on year 48, you're not going to pay as much as you would if you bought it on year one, because you're really buying a long-term lease. You're not actually transferring ownership. And that seems to have been implemented and worked at scale for at least a few hundred years. We don't really know for sure. But the idea, I think, is a powerful one, is that you want to have a sense in which, at least on some dimensions, that people uh, get to operate on a level playing field and have a sort of clean slate start over, um, at least for some purposes. Uh, the place this gets hard, you know, you know, so there's a lot of complexity there, right? You, to, you want to slice it across different, the, the space of different people, and you want to also slice it across different time horizons. The really tricky one for a decentralized system is you have to have it across disjoint administrative domains. Right? So server A can mint unlimited amounts of cred, then everyone there is going to look wealthier than somebody else. So this leads to the concept of an exchange rate. Is that there's cred associated with an individual, with the community and rather communities that they belong to. And then there's also the uh, servers that manage these different ecosystems, which have policy. So, you know, we do that today. And right? if there's a, a mail server that's spewing out a lot of spam, the other servers will band together and ban them. Right? Mm -hmm. so even though email is a distributed system, there are crude post hoc mechanisms that we've evolved for um, uh, enforcing good behavior. And one can, it's, you know, one can imagine a either cash-based or Bitcoin-based or something like that type system where, and, you know, th this is, interestingly, there's this tension in that uh, at the one level, uh, you want to reward people for uh, good behavior, right? Uh, uh, and, well, so, so the two easiest metrics to measure uh, in any system is the number of sort of unique individuals, I guess there's three metrics. One is the number of unique individuals who are participating. Two is the amount of activity that they interact with, uh, which is slightly harder, but still relatively easy. And then 
Harder than that is the amount of value that they're creating. And what you care about most is the amount of value that they're creating for that community and for other communities. But that's the hardest thing to measure. And there's this general trade-off between things that are easy to measure and important to measure. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And then orthogonal to that is the issue of the, re- the concrete resources they contribute to the system, right? So you can imagine community A has a lot of people who gain a little bit of, uh, contribute a little bit of value. Community B has a few people who contribute enormous of social value, but very little mon- uh, monetary value. And then community C who is contributing a lot financially. And there's this weird tension in that um, different people see different things as unfair, right? If, if community C is, is like underwriting the whole project for communities A and B, they might feel understandably that they deserve some sort of greater say in how their money is being spent or else they're just going to leave. And so it's not a, uh, so the hard thing is to come up with something that is perceived fair enough that it can tolerate, um, you know, the random noise of imperfection, right? Because no matter what principles you have, there's going to be some flop in how well you enforce them and how they are perceived. So the um, interesting solution that kind of happened more or less by accident in the United States was the great compromise of the U.S. Constitution, where individual states uh, split their um, Congress into the houses, which are based on population, and the Senate, which is based on just the fact of being a state. So in our world, the the simplest analogy would be that there's one house which is based on the number of members, or really all the members, based on a unique identifier. And then the second house is composed of all the servers, uh, the the different operators who run the system. Uh, There's also a third group here, which is community owners. And so maybe there's a, a different way of doing it. And then the, I think the best you can hope for is actually just to have good metrics. Like, I don't know that, you know, money is not a great proxy for value, but it's the most objective one in the sense that people don't really argue about how much money you have. They do in the higher levels of stock valuation, but compared to everything else in terms of, uh, you know, human value. So it's a, it's a useful proxy as long as you don't take it too seriously. And so I think the best you can hope for is a system where you track the money carefully, you know, where it's coming from and, and, and how it's going within the system. But there's no official rule that it has to be respected. And there are guidelines to make sure uh, to at least uh, minimize uh, the amount of damage you can do. Like the fact that, for example, you know, an easy one would be that cred used for advertising to like, you know, uh, is based on that season's activity. So if you've done a lot of work and built a lot of cred, 
over time, then people can look up and see that you've got all this historical cred. But if you want to actually use it to buy things, it depends on what you've done in the most recent seasons. So that there's a sense in which uh, just having sat on a lot of money for a long time doesn't really help you in the short run. Does that make sense? Or am I going to mm -hmm. abstract? So, no, uh, so I, 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 I see. Yeah. I so see what you're saying, yeah. Right, yeah. So in terms of a, a system design, there's a few things, there's a few levers you have to pull. One is there are certain objective measures that are uh, relatively costly or, or, or non-trivial to gain. One is a unique identifier, especially if it's a unique identifier that has to build up reputation by interacting with other people, a pseudonym, if you will. Uh, the second thing is message activities, right? You can see which individuals, uh, you know, are, you know, within community conversation, within server communication, even can be somewhat private. Communication between servers is a um, thing that you can track. So it comes into privacy questions. You track that at the per individual basis on both the sender and the recipient. You track it on the per community basis or just at the per server basis. So there's a tension between fine-grained tracking and privacy. But the one way to do that is that you track it only at the server-to-server -server level. I know the server X sent 4,000 messages to server Y. So I know that that was its message budget for the month of June. And then server Y, in a sense, has discretion. And we, and we say, you know, the, the exchange rate for cred is, is, is so many cred per message. And we can say, okay, you get activity cred, which the server is responsible for dividing up among uh, the members and communities on its platform. And the servers, you know, everyone knows how much uh, cred the server got, and they can, you know, work out their own political solution for how they do it. And if people don't like it, then they can take their community and move it to a different server. So there is a sort of check and balance on activity cred and um, member cred. And then there also is a sense in which the servers, I think I discussed this before, would be the financial engines of this ecosystem, right? And that running a server takes real resources and therefore, uh, you know, the community hosts would pay something to the server in order to host it. And hopefully it's an open market and commoditized so people really are incentive to incentivize to create good value and, uh, you know, drive pri keep prices down or keep adding value-added services uh, within the ecosystem. Uh, but then the servers would be responsible for underwriting the governance, if you will. And that acts as a useful proxy of, you know, of the, um, uh, and that's the second lever, is that, you know, one is that at the sort of instantaneous level, you can monitor how much, how many users, messages, and cred are flowing between servers. So that gives you some metrics uh, for uh, creating scarcity or assigning value. And then at a higher level, you have a political process set on top of this with a cooperative structure with, you know, transparent accounting and accountable leaders. And I think it's called um, delegated voting, this idea of a revocable proxy that you can delegate someone to, to talk for you, but then 
based on their behavior, you can always revoke your proxy and vote directly on things that matter to you. So that feels like the building blocks that one could use to build a, a system. And the idea is that if, say, there's a rogue server where someone takes this code and they just want to make it all about um, uh, domestic terrorism in terms of committing it, right? These are all people who want to do horrible things to the country. And the price you have to make in the system is, okay, the code is all open source, the protocols are all open, these people can take all of the tools we have built and use it for nefarious purposes, and there really is, anything, is not anything we can do to stop them, okay? The only uh, counterweight to that is the sense that if they do that, is it, is it, you have to create some sort of cultural norm around you publish your goals, and in fact, we need to find a way to actually, this is probably the hardest thing to metricalize, measure, um, which is that you want people to publish their goals and then you want other people to rate them on how well they're doing it. So that's, I think, where we make this a pro-social network is that each community says, this is what we are doing. These are the benefits we provide to our members. And these are the benefits we seek to provide to the outside world. So if you're consuming our data feed or our products or even our members, Right. If you know, I, you know, one of the biggest values would be if I create a community that's really good at raising and training leaders, uh, then uh, people would, you know, give me cred based on the quality of the people that I recommend to them. And you see, these people are really good at acts. Right. This is what guilds and unions were supposed to be, in some sense. Was, uh, but the idea is that it's a, it's not a. Um, royal charter which means you're the only people who can do this right the key thing about the system is that you always have the right to fork right if i feel like the guild is not valuing the apprentices appropriately i can fork it into a new guild which can compete with the parent guild and that's uh, a tricky thing but i think in terms of creating the sort of egalitarian uh, basis for competition that's required and there could even be some social norms around, like if you fork from a parent guild or a parent community, it's conventional to tie your revenue to the parent to honor them for what they gave you. And if you're not, at least it's a scandal, if not a uh, you know legal requirement. So anyway, but that vision of I can um, I'm expected to publish my my out gift what i'm going to do to the community and people can judge me on that at the very least the terrorists would have to be honest about what they're doing in order to interact with anyone else and that really seems to be the best you can do because one man's terrorist another man's freedom fighter and you have to give people the freedom to pursue their goals and the best you can hope for is that they have a strong incentive to be honest about their goals and the rest of the community, you know, reward.
Okay, so I guess Ernest 